Thank you, gentlemen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 25. We want to look at verses 31 through 46. Judgment of the nations is what I've titled the message this morning. Lord, again, we do thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts. Help me to teach accurately and clearly. Have your way in our hearts as we study together. Bring Christ's name. Amen. We are still in Matthew. Uh, this is sermon number 98 in Matthew. Uh, Note uh, the theme on the overhead is Christ the King, and we have worked our way down to chapters 24 and 25, the predictions of the King. And today we are finishing out that section that we call the Olivet Discourse uh, in Matthew 24 and 25, which is the key prophetic text in the New Testament that the rest of the New Testament builds on, what I like to call the, the prophetic seed plot of the New Testament. And if I was to ask you, what is the main revelatory point that Jesus brings out in this section, what would you say? You might want to think about it. But if I was to ask you, what is the main... You didn't know there was going to be a test today, did you? But what is the main revelatory point that Jesus is bringing out in the Olivet Discourse? Well, I would say it is the new concept, new revelation here that there are two phases to his second coming. That was brand new revelation uh, that the rest of the New Testament then builds on. Christ's second coming to the earth was prophesied in the Old Testament. That's not new. I mean, that's in the Old Testament. But the rapture phase of his second coming was not. That was brand new New Testament revelation, as was all New Testament truth related to the church. So, um, I'm not going to show this a whole lot more, but uh, I've shown this a lot in recent weeks. Uh, second coming, two phases. Phase one is the rapture. Next event on God's prophetic calendar. And then phase two, Christ's return to the earth. Uh, it returns for the church in the air here, returns to the earth with the church uh, to reign at uh, phase two. So, uh, that is key. And that first phase here, as I say, brand new revelation. Nobody had ever really brought this out before. Christ is the one who introduces us to, to this first phase. Now, Jesus, the master teacher, brought out these two distinct phases of his second coming by emphasizing that prior to the first phase, there are no signposts, as it will come without forewarning as a thief in the night. However, the second phase will have all kinds of signs, so much so that the people living then will know that it is near at the doors, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, 33. So again, uh, with the rapture, the first phase, no signs. That's why we are to live ready. It could happen today. We, we don't know. That's why we say perhaps today around here. Um, but then as you come into what follows the rapture is the judgment of the world, the tribulation period, all kinds of signs related to the Antichrist and so forth, and then the second coming of Christ uh, preceded by many signs. Christ makes a major distinction here between these two aspects in the Olivet Discourse. Now the second question is this, second question to your test, how are you doing so far? Anyway, second question. Uh, why did Christ deal with the second phase of his 
coming first. Instead of dealing with the first phase first. You know, normally, uh, we would think you would deal with the first phase first. And then the second phase. I mean, dealing with it uh, chronologically makes sense to us, right? I mean, Paul did deal with it in that fashion in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. But being the master teacher, Jesus had a good reason for doing it the way he did. You see, first he dealt with the disciples' question. I mean, that's what's the springboard for this whole thing. And their question is, what will be the, ready for this, sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Signs relate to the second phase of his coming. And so the first thing he dealt with was to answer their question, which relates to signs and relates to revelation they already had related to the Old Testament. But then building on that as the master teacher, he then introduced new revelation related to the first phase of his second coming and then developed it through the use of three explanatory parables. A good teacher first builds on what you know and then builds new additional information on that foundation. And that's what Jesus did. Let me give you the big picture here, right? We've been working through this verse by verse. Let me give you the big picture now as far as the whole entire Olivet Discourse. Uh, Question, this springs the whole thing. Uh, Question about signs uh, related to his coming, the end of the age. Uh, Jesus answers that question. Uh, Really, I think it's one question, a combo question. But he answers that question in uh, relationship to the 70th week signs that usher in the second coming. That is the second stage. So they ask the question, he answers it, uh, related to signs. And then we have a transition. Verse 36 through 44 introduce new revelation. Another phase of the second coming that comes as a thief in the night. No signs. And so transition, introduce new revelation related to the, the uh, first phase. And here we see no signs. Don't know the timing. Unexpected as a thief in the night. Ushers in judgment. And then three explanatory parables follow, which emphasize delay, imminency, and the importance of living ready. And that brings us to where we are today. uh, The culmination of the whole matter, climaxing in Christ's second coming to the earth. That finishes out the Olivet Discourse. Keep in mind what Dr. Michael Vlock says. The rapture should not be studied as a stand-alone issue. It is directly related to the day of the Lord and functions as an evacuation for the church before the day of the Lord begins. The first and the second phases of Christ's second coming serve as, in effect, bookends to the 70th week of Daniel. And this whole package is often dealt with as a unit. The ultimate issue is always about the kingdom and who ultimately can go in as illustrated in those who have true faith and those who do not. Now, in all of the parables, the prominent issue is ultimately who will go into the kingdom and who will not. That's always the issue. The whole of history is moving towards the kingdom. And the ultimate issue is always who's going to go in and who's not going to. 
Christ repeatedly goes to the end of the matter and speaks in terms of the ultimate issue of who will be saved and who will, and who will not be. And that brings us to the end of the discourse where Christ brings us to the climactic conclusion or culmination of his second coming. Namely, his second coming to the earth as seen in Matthew 24, 31 through 46. Stanley Toussaint says, in the last three parables that we just looked at, the principle, uh, I get this on the overhead, by the way, too, so you can follow along. Uh, the principle which underlies each is the same. The fruit of faithfulness and preparedness would indicate the character of those living in the days before his coming. In each parable, character is manifested by works. This thought forms the key to the next passage, which deals with the judgment of the nations, which is where we are in our study this morning. So let's pick it up there. The judgment of the nations, Matthew 25, uh, 31 through 46. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. This clearly has in view Christ's second coming to the earth, where he will sit on his throne, what is called the throne of his glory, in the kingdom. Now, the kingdom is clearly in view as Christ, in verse 34, says to the blessed, inherit the kingdom. Come, come, inherit the kingdom. So we're clearly talking uh, his second coming to the earth when he sets up his kingdom. Son of man is a messianic title. Uh, in fact, it was uh, the title that Christ used most for himself as recorded in the Gospels some 80 times. It's traced back to Daniel not, uh, 7, verses 13 through 14, where the connection of the Son of Man with his glory and his kingdom are all tied together in a unit. Uh, note there, this uh, text in Daniel 7, I was watching the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. There's the title, Messianic title. Coming with the clouds of heaven. Second coming. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then uh, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which will not be destroyed. Now, when Christ comes at his second coming, all the holy angels will be with him. And what a glorious sight that will be. I'm not sure how many of those angels there are, but there's a lot of them, I'm sure. Well, as the Son of Man comes, he will sit on the throne of his glory... And the first order of business will be judgment. Christ's throne of glory will serve as a throne of judgment. The purpose of this judgment will be to judge among the living who have survived the tribulation period. To see who will be allowed to go into the kingdom and who will not be. It will be high drama for the entire world. Now there are various judgments described in the Bible. And we're all headed towards judgment day. One judgment or another. There are different judgments. But we're all going to give an account before God as the judge. He is the judge of all. After the rapture, the believers who make up the church, we go to be with Christ and we go into judgment. We go to judgment. Uh, what is called the Bema seat. Uh, Bema is a Greek word that means judgment. Uh, and we will be judged there at the Bema seat. Uh, and this judgment is about rewards. It's an evaluation of our lives to determine rewards, the degree 
of reward that you will receive or that I will receive. After the millennial reign of Christ is another judgment, what we call the great white throne judgment. And this is the judgment of all the lost of all the ages. And this judgment will determine degrees of eternal punishment. They're all going to the lake of fire, but there is going to be degrees of eternal punishment. So, um, okay, there we go. Here's the question. Uh, Which judgment are you going to be at? Judgment seat of Christ? That's the believer's judgment, rewards. Great white throne judgment, uh, the judgment of all the lost. And this happens after the rapture. Uh, And this happens after the millennial reign, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. But we're talking about another judgment here in our text. We're talking about uh, the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And this happens at the time of the second coming. And it relates to those who are living on the earth at that time. And the issue is, who's going to go into the kingdom? One more overhead here. Uh, Note this timeline. Uh, We have the rapture and then the Bema seat. Uh, At the second coming, this is where we're talking about the judgment of of the sheep and the goats. And then at the end of the millennium is the great white throne judgment. So note those three. Uh, with each of these, there is a judgment. The, the believer's judgment, uh, the sheep and the goats, and then the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial reign. Verse 32, all the nations, all, not, not some, all, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Now the word nations here normally normally refers to Gentiles, as distinguished from the Jews. Although in some context, it can refer to all people, including Jews. But normally, it's Gentiles. Although all the nations at large are collectively gathered before him, the people will be judged individually. Nations is neuter, while them is masculine in gender. The very personal activities defining the judgment further show this is a judgment of individuals. Yes, all the nations are gathered there collectively, but individually they are being judged, the sheep and the goats. Now it's important to note that there are three groups of people spoken of in this passage. And this becomes very important in terms of how you interpret uh, the passage. Uh, The sheep, the goats, and then Christ's brethren. And the issue is how the sheep treat his brethren and the goats, how they treat his brethren. And there's a difference. So you got these three groups, and the issue is how are the brethren being treated? Stanley Toussaint says the key to the identification of all three is the interpretation of these brothers of mine. Now, if the sheep are Christians from Gentile nations and the goats are unbelievers from the Gentile nations then my brethren must refer to converted Jews. And that's my understanding. There are good men who disagree, have other views, but uh, that's my understanding. Ed Glasscock says the best understanding of brother in this context is that they are faithful Jews who are suffering in anticipation of Messiah's return. So I take it that Christ's brethren in this context is probably referring to Jewish believers. And realize there's a whole context related to Christ's second coming. 
The context is that the Jews have just come through what the Bible calls the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. And it says in that verse, it goes on to say, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. Daniel 12, 1 specifically mentions the Jews, and then says, There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And Jesus said this will be a time of great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. In addition, note that Joel the prophet says what he says in relation to Christ's second coming. In Joel chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. For behold, in those days at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, which relates to his second coming, I will gather all nations. Now what's the issue? What's the issue of this gathering? And bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. We believe that's the Kidron Valley. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people. What's this gathering of all the nations about? It's, it's, about, it's about over the Jews. Enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. So there is a judgment of the nations, very specifically mentioned here in Joel, in relationship to the nations and how they treated God's people, the Jews. Now, the Bible very specifically mentions one of the key reasons for judgment in relation to Christ's second coming involves the issue of how the nations treated or mistreated his people, Israel. You say, well, I don't think God cares about the Jews anymore today. Let's just have replacement theology. Major error. Major mega error. Uh, Joel is very clear that God has not forgotten about the Jews and he does not appreciate how the nations have mistreated them. Now it would seem that there is no specific judgment for Israel at this time. For the Jews. Because in the course of the tribulation period, God will have already purged out all the unbelieving Jews. Note what Zechariah 13, 8 and 9 says. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. Two-thirds of the Jews are not going to survive. But one-third shall be left in it. And I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, the one-third. This is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. These are the true believers. They are the purged. They are the refined. They are the ones that are brought through. Two-thirds are going to die. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, describes the time of Jacob's trouble, but then says, he shall be saved out of it. Deliverance is going to come to Israel because Israel at this point has been purged, and a believing remnant is looking to the Lord in faith. Now, it seems that at the time of the second coming, there's going to be a great turning to the Lord in Israel. A great remnant, one-third. So much so that when the dust settles here, all Israel will be saved. That's what Paul brings out in Romans chapter 11. Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away 
their sins. You know, Isaiah 40 is a very key passage in the Old Testament uh, where God says, speak comfort to Jerusalem. Speak comfort, my, speak comfort to my people. And then he says, her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. Isaiah 40, verse 2. And then it speaks of the voice preparing the way of the Lord, which I take it to be, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, applied to John the Baptist, who was a type of Elijah, who will be the, the ultimate fulfillment of this voice crying in the wilderness, fulfilled in the tribulation period. And then it goes on to say, and then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. In context, Israel's pardon and the Lord's coming are very closely connected. All this to say it would seem consistent to think that here in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats are saved and unsaved Gentiles respectively, and that Christ's brethren in this context refer to converted Israel. Matthew has often been dubbed the gospel of judgment because it often addresses the subject throughout the course of the book. Christ is often referred to as shepherd. The language of judging between the sheep and the goats is perhaps drawn from Ezekiel 40, uh, 34, 17 through 19. Shepherds in the time of Christ often herded sheep and goats together during the daytime. But then at night they would separate them because the sheep with their heavy wool uh, needed less shelter. Verse 33. He will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. The right hand is the position of favor. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The king here is Jesus. These Gentile converts, the sheep, are called blessed as the favor of God rests upon them. And they are invited now to enter in to their inheritance in the kingdom, which was prepared for them by God even before the foundation of the world. It definitely was not Plan B. The kingdom has always been the goal that God has in view for his people. The whole of history is moving towards the kingdom. But it won't be in place until the time of the second coming, which is the entire context here. Until then, we are praying, your kingdom come. We are praying for the kingdom to come, as Jesus taught us to pray. And if indeed these Gentiles, as I think they are, uh, this means that Gentiles were included in God's plan all along. The Messianic kingdom was predetermined, and it was ordained that there would be a place for Gentiles in the kingdom. Verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Jesus here lists six specific things in which these sheep ministered to him with compassion and mercy. The works mentioned here are not the ground of salvation, but are the evidence of it. A key way true believers show their faith is loving fellow believers, loving God's people. In the tribulation period, true Gentile believers will show their faith by ministering to believing Jews who are in the in the, in the crucible of it, 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 they are in the thick of it all. I mean, this is the time of Jacob's trouble. So Gentiles will show their faith by ministering to believing Jews who will be going through their greatest trial in the whole of history. 
Only true believers would dare to do such a thing because Antichrist will seek to kill all those whose allegiance is not to him. I mean, he declares himself to be God. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The saved Gentiles are called sheep, blessed, and righteous. They are in right relationship with God because they will have come to true saving faith. Being in right relationship with God demonstrates itself in how one lives, in how one responds to God's people. Moody Bible Commentary, their surprise indicates they were not doing these things in an attempt to gain admission into the kingdom. The implication from the passage is that while the good deeds do not produce righteousness, those who are righteous do good deeds. In other words, they're the fruit. Their surprise is not in being recognized for doing these things. Rather, their surprise is in finding out that when they did these things for believing Jews, Christ's brethren, they were actually doing it for Jesus. That's the surprise. Verse 40, And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. At the very least, brethren here are believers in Christ. But again, I take them to be a separate category from the Gentile sheep mentioned earlier and the Gentile goats, meaning I take it they are probably converted Jews. This is a very powerful verse. The least of Christ's brethren refers to what society will consider to be the lowest of the Jews. And it will be open season on the Jews. The Antichrist will make an all-out effort to exterminate them, as seen in Revelation 12. Now, it would be very easy in this tribulation context. Why would you bother with concerning yourself about the Jews at this point? I mean, it's going to be a great risk to help these people that society puts no value on and has an open, uh, you know, a bounty on their head, as it were. But the righteous will do so. They care. They intervene. They risk everything to help these very vulnerable Jews in the very lowest of position. The defining hallmark of true believers is that they love and care for one another. This is not a new standard, by the way, but one that is consistent with the new command given by Jesus Christ. John chapter 13, 34, 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. This is the divining mark of true followers of Christ. If you have love for one another. And then uh, John builds on this as we come to 1 John 3, 14. We know, we know that we pass from death into life. How do you know you're a saved person? We know that we pass from death into life because we love the brethren. Well, what if you don't love the brethren? Well, that's a sign you're not a believer. We know that we pass from death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Now, it is interesting that the test of who is qualified to enter into the kingdom at this point is not a moral test. It's really not uh, a, a mere belief test, not a religious test, etc. Rather, the test is how the world treated God's people. 
converted Jews. In a sense, how people treat the Jews has always served as a test, right? It goes way back to Genesis. It does, really. Hmm. Can you help me out? There we go. Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. God's speaking to Abraham. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. You really don't want to be on the cursing side of the Jews. Uh, That puts you in a position of being cursed by God. We see this in an ultimate sense here in Matthew 25, where one's place in the kingdom is directly tied to how they treated the Jews. William MacDonald says, The uniform testimony of the Bible is that salvation is by faith and not by works. But the Bible is just as emphatic in teaching that true faith produces good works. And a key part of those good works that serve as evidence that one has true faith, ultimately has a a place in the kingdom, is how a person treats God's people. And here in context, the context of Matthew 25, converted Jews. Again, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, There we go. Uh, he who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. Bible knowledge commentary. A Gentile going out of his way to assist a Jew in the tribulation will mean that Gentile has become a believer in Jesus Christ during the tribulation. By such a stand and action, a believing Gentile will put his life in jeopardy. His works will not save him, but his works will reveal that he is redeemed. Often these verses are used to emphasize the importance of social or prison ministries. And there's an application there. But the context should be noted here. Again, Moody Bible Commentary says, it is good and proper that believers should be involved in prison ministries. But it must be noted that verse 40 indicates that these acts of kindness are rendered especially, not exclusively, to the Jewish followers of Jesus. By way of further application, we should be especially concerned about fellow believers who are in prison. You have to push it five times. That's the new rule. (laughs) Hebrews 13.3. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. To be cursed in this context is to be placed under the eternal judgment of God, whereby one is removed from the presence of God and destined to the place of eternal misery and torment in everlasting fire. The eternal domain of the lost is consistently described as a place of outer darkness in combination with everlasting fire. Henry Morris says... Those who are offended by the idea of eternal hellfire as the abode of the lost must at least reckon with the fact that it was Jesus Christ himself who set forth this doctrine most emphatically. And it's true. Jesus said more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. Wycliffe Bible Commentary, Though the righteous have been pronounced blessed by the Father and enter a kingdom prepared for them before creation, the fate of the wicked is not stated in such specific terms of election. You see, the everlasting fire is not stated to have been prepared for lost humanity. 
but rather for the devil and his angels. The devil's angels are fallen angels that we call demons who followed him in his rebellion. God specifically prepared hellfire for them. But all those who follow Satan in his rebellion will join him in his hellbound fate. If you don't want God, you will have Satan and the demons forever. Notice in Revelation 20, verse 10, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. This is after they've been there for 1,000 years. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Warren Wearsby, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. God never prepared hell for people. There's no evidence from scripture that God predestinates people to go to hell. Verse 42. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger. You did not take me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Do you see? It's all about Jesus. I mean, he mentions either I or me 19 times. How one treats Jesus tells the story on them. And how one treats the brethren of Christ is really how they are treating him. You say, well, how would you treat Jesus if he was here in person? Well, just look how you're treating his people. Tells the story. That's a sobering reality on a number of levels. But here we find it's telling on who is really saved and who is not, who will go into the kingdom and who will not. Recall what Jesus said to Saul as he was on the road to Damascus, breathing out threats and murder, it says, against the disciples of the Lord. All of a sudden, Jesus appeared to Saul, and here's how that went down. (laughs) There we go. Uh, Acts 9, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I had to come as a shock to Saul. I mean, he hadn't been persecuting Jesus, right? He'd just been persecuting the church. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. How one treats the disciples of Christ is how they're treating Jesus. This is a most serious matter. Certainly lots of application even for us in terms of how we treat one another. Jesus takes it very personally and it's telling. D.A. Carson, as people respond to his disciples or brothers and align themselves with their distress and afflictions, they align themselves with the Messiah who identifies himself with them. There are sins of omission and sins of commission. Not doing good is the moral equivalent before God of doing evil. To not care about God's people is morally evil. Moody Bible Commentary, those who are not true followers of Jesus will not show kindness to believers, whether they are Jewish or Gentile believers, and will also thereby indicate they have no connection with him. Verse 46. 
And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The goats showed no kindness to God's people, demonstrated they didn't really care about Jesus. They didn't really know Jesus. And consequently, they will go away into everlasting punishment. In contrast, the righteous, the sheep, who did care for God's people, in reality showed that they really did know Jesus, and consequently, they will enter into eternal life. Again, Wycliffe Bible Commentary, while eternal may imply a qualitative as well as quantitative concept, the aspect of unending duration cannot be disassociated from the word. The word here uh, translated everlasting or eternal is the very same word used to describe the eternality of God in Romans 16.26. Now, some have tried to say that while eternal life in heaven is forever, the suffering in hell is only temporary, and eventually annihilation will consume them. However, the Greek word translated eternal in eternal life is the very same Greek word used to translate everlasting in everlasting punishment. Uh, I like a more literal translation at this point, such as we have in the ESV. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, if the punishment is not eternal, then neither is eternal life. I mean, the very same adjective is used to qualify both. The punishment is just as eternal as is the eternal life experienced by the saved. Both are eternal. Now, sometimes people want to say, everyone has eternal life. It's just that some will experience it in hell and and some will experience it in heaven. Really, that's not biblically accurate. You see, the lost have eternal existence. But eternal existence is not necessarily eternal life. They will experience eternal death or eternal punishment. Revelation 20, 14 describes being cast into the lake of fire as the second death. There's nothing about life there. It's all death, eternal death, eternal punishment. Now, only saved people will go into the kingdom. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And Jesus went on to say that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And who are the true believers? Well, true faith manifests itself in a love for God's people. That is a major identifying mark of those who are born again. This is a true story. It comes from uh, Erwin Lutzer in his book, uh, Hitler's Cross. And this is a story about a man who lived in Germany under the uh, regime of Hitler back in the day of the Holocaust. And here's his story. I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because what could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we would hear the whistle in the distance and then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized that it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. 
We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly, and soon we heard them no more. Years have passed, and no one talks about it anymore, but I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me. Forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians and yet did nothing to intervene. And then Lutzer says this, Most discussions of the Holocaust speak of two groups of people, the Nazi perpetrators and the Jewish victims. There were also many bystanders who numbered in the millions, most of whom would have described themselves as Christians. The majority sought refuge in neutrality. Yet whether we like to admit it or not, this neutrality was in effect complicity. Proverbs 24, 11 and 12, deliver those who are drawn to death and, and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? By way of application. God help us to have the mind of Christ towards his brethren, all fellow believers, for in ministering to them, we are indeed ministering to Christ himself. It's all about Jesus, my friends. It's all about Jesus. Let's stand and have our closing song, then I'll close in prayer. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus, sing his mercy and 